Or perhaps you're waiting for a person who, someone you really want to see, maybe it's been a long time, or maybe it's someone you've got mixed feelings about. Or if you're Dara or Theo, who are aged two, for those that don't know them, maybe you're just waiting to catch sight of trains themselves, these glorious machines that whiz by with magnificent speed, making wonderfully imitable noises as they pass that carry parents off to this mysterious destination known as work and bring them back again. I'm regularly awoken at quarter to six with choo-choo from Dara's cot. Um, waiting. We spend so much of our lives waiting for something or other. Waiting for the most mundane things, for the doorbell to ring with a delivery, for someone to call or message us back, for computers to load, for the washing machine to finish, for trains and buses, for the kettle to boil, for someone to stop talking and ask us how we are. <laughs> For children to start sleeping through the night, for bedtime when we're tired, for errant husbands to return from the pub. That felt amusing when I wrote it at quarter to midnight last night. It didn't feel amusing anymore at 2am. <laughs> for the morning, when we can't sleep and just want the night to be over, we wait for people to turn up. Sorry about that, everyone who's ever waited for me. <laughs> Sometimes we wait for the weekend for holidays, for rest, and at this time of year, I reckon even those people who profess that they love winter are waiting a bit for the spring, for the bulbs and the flowers, the longer days, the warmth and time outdoors. We wait too for more significant things, for exam results, application results, interview feedback, a job we want that pays enough for us to live. We might be waiting for a partner we can trust our lives with, for a pregnancy, for a baby to be safely born for somewhere good to live. We might wait for an invitation, unsure of whether we matter to someone as much as they matter to us. We wait for decisions to be made which affect our futures, be it by managers at work, a bank, election results, governments, other countries. For medical test results for ourselves and people we love, anxiously wondering whether our worlds are about to be turned upside down. We might wait for broken relationships to be restored, for forgiveness, for reconciliation. We might wait for ourselves and others to change, to become more mature, more loving, patient and kind. We wait for justice, for system change, for the whole of humanity to awaken to what truly matters, for God's kingdom to come. We wait for these things and so many more besides. What are you waiting for? Lucy asked this question one Sunday morning, possibly eight or nine years ago. It's so long ago, I can't remember. And I promptly and unexpectedly burst into tears. Um, so all feelings welcome here if that question evokes feelings in you. I realised I was waiting for my brother to be healed and for his life to feel livable. As many of you will know, he's since died. And in some ways, I'm waiting now to see whether Jesus' words are true whether there will be a day when the last are first and the first are last, whether, as John was sharing last week, and as Paul wrote in his letters, whether all this suffering will be worth it. Because it cannot be compared to the glory that awaits us. I've been wondering recently about the things that Jesus said during his passion, the time leading up to his crucifixion and death. His words to the criminal next to him, about today you'll be with me in paradise his pronouncement that it is finished, his surrender of his spirit to God. I just wonder how much faith it took for him to say that. And I think we can 
maybe lose sight of Jesus's humanity by emphasizing his divinity. But I wonder how certain he was or whether it took faith to say those things. Maybe faith and knowledge were the same thing for him. And what is waiting like? It depends what you're waiting for, of course, but I think even the most enjoyable prospects can still be difficult to wait for. What if it doesn't happen? We might have a babysitter booked and a night out to look forward to, but what if our kid throws up? Not that that happened to me the other week. (laughs) Or a wonderful holiday planned, but what if it snows so much that we can't travel? As some of you will know, I did a three-year course in psychological therapies with children, young people and families. And in almost every module, you know how they write out the learning outcomes, what you're supposed to take away from it, would be this phrase, learn how to tolerate uncertainty. (laughs) I came to think that the entire course was really about that one thing. So much of therapeutic work is about helping people develop their capacity to tolerate uncertainty. And this is because a lot of the strategies that we come up with to cope with uncertainty end up causing us more problems. To give fairly straightforward examples, we might avoid going for job interviews because the anxiety caused by the uncertainty of the outcome. And that might mean we get stuck in a job we don't really like or get unconfident about our ability to move. We might hold back from sharing our thoughts with people because of uncertainty about their response and end up feeling isolated. We might adopt an overly rigid approach to life, planning every last detail, and so lose out on the joy of spontaneity. We might use religion to provide an illusion of certainty. Or, more prosaically, we might find ways to numb out to the pain and anxiety of waiting, perhaps checking our phones or computers obsessively, making cups of tea, eating sweet food, or becoming preoccupied or obsessional about something, or addicted. And those are all examples that I'm drawing from my own experience, but I'm sure we could come up with loads more between us. So this goal, then, of being able to better tolerate uncertainty, what does that look like? In my experience, it looks like this, that we get to know about the parts of ourselves that we think ought to be feared, hidden or resisted. In therapeutic language, we come to know our unconscious drives and see them with a compassion-filled gaze. First, the therapist's compassion, and then later our own. In biblical language, things get brought into the light of God's love to be healed, redeemed and restored. And what is more, in my experience, something beautiful gets brought forth. It may be forgiveness, it might be the release of dreams and vision, it may be courage. As we wait in our uncertainty, wounds and desires emerge, wounds which need God's healing, and desires that join with Jesus' prayer for the kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. You may be aware, if you're sort of a regular part of this community, um, that we're currently in a period of waiting together, and this particular period of waiting was triggered by a sense that the structures we had for organising ourselves, which we called cells, um, were not working for quite a lot of the community. And I have to give a bit of backstory here. Our church community was planted in 2006 by six people moving from City Life Church in Cambridge to begin life and church together here in Luton. CLC Cambridge was a cell church, which all of us, all of us six had joined as students. And I can still remember being introduced to cell groups there and being told that it was very important to know this is not a Bible study group, nor a home group, because the idea is Bible study would be for learning and home group would be for learning plus relationship with one another. But cell groups were all about those things plus outreach, 
joining new, new members, and then multiplying the groups as those groups grow. And that is what happened during our time as students there. And it was really exciting to be part of something so dynamic, missional, hungry for encounter with people who did not think or live like me, to see prayers answered and people change as they become disciples of Jesus. Because of the rapid growth in the groups, the attitude to leadership was everybody's a leader. It was very releasing and demanding in a good way to take ourselves seriously and realise that we had gifts to bring. And these experiences of cells were where I first learned to be open and vulnerable with other people, to cook for 10 people without worrying about it too much, to welcome people into whatever space I had, generally a small room, to seek out regular meetings with friends one-to-one to share the realities of our lives and pray, sometimes together or sometimes for them if they didn't have faith. The emphasis was on through-the-week relationship, that cells were not about a meeting once a week, but something that was ongoing and that was achievable and a lot of fun because of the possibilities that go with student lifestyle. I remain incredibly grateful for that time. Since 2006 the vast majority of people who've identified as part of CLC Luton have been part of a cell group and often identification with the cell group has been stronger than with the community as a whole with many more people turning up to the various cell meetings going on in a week than would come on a Sunday. We chose from the beginning to try, as far as possible, to honour relationships that grow in cells, not to mix groups up just for the sake of it, but to value the depth that comes through time, through extended time journeying together, and to value working through difficulty and conflict. Of course, people join and leave, so cells have changed over the years, but I think many here will have experienced the blessing and the challenge of doggedly meeting with people once a week, sometimes for years, while also practising hospitality and making space for newcomers. I've come to see cells as being like greenhouses, giving special attention to tender young growth, individual spiritual growth and the growth of relationships, until such time as they can flourish in the garden, becoming part of the overall beauty of the whole. By the end of last year, we were in a new situation with over half the adults in the church not in a cell. This was for lots of different reasons, but the important thing for the purposes of today was that it kicked off a period of discernment about what we should do next. It seemed really important to take the time to explore how we could structure the life of our community in a way which served and did not constrain the movement of the spirit. It seems really important here to pause and have a think about groups. Groups are fascinating. (laughs) There's been loads theorised and researched about groups. I chose this picture because I read recently about the size of primate brains corresponding to the size of groups that they live with. The bigger the group, the bigger the brain. Grooming is the main way that primates bond and maintain connections with each other. And one theory of language development is that as the, the brains and the groups got bigger, the time needed to go and groom everybody in your group took up so much time there wasn't enough time to sort of eat and do other important things. Um, and so language becomes a substitute to maintain the cohesion of community. Even with the added advantage of language, there's still a finite capacity to our ability to be in relationships with others. You might have heard of Dunbar's number. Anyone know what it is? Yeah, 150. Was that Liz by any chance? <laughs> Liz is pub, pub quiz queen. Um, so Dunbar is an academic who's re- researched the number of people we can be in stable relationship with at any one time. The well-known number is 150. And I think he defines this as people would be able to bump into, go for a drink with, and not feel too awkward. 
Um, <laughs> but there are other significant numbers too. Five for the most intimate relationships. Fifteen people we can turn to for sympathy if we need it. Fifty people that we could invite for dinner. Five hundred acquaintances and fifteen hundred, the number of faces that we can recognise. So there's that to consider, the limits to our capacity for relationships. Then there is the purpose of our groups. Most of us, if not all of us, exist in multiple groups in our lives. People we're related to by blood, friends from different times in our lives, groups for sport or music or other activities. In church, we have lots of groups too. Groups to run kids club, to host, to organise events and to lead. We lead as a group. We don't have one individual leader. So what are these other groups cells as we've known them, whatever we're going to call them next. What are they for? It's possible that everyone in this room could have a different answer to that question and it might change over time as well and I really think that's okay because I was thinking wouldn't it be weird if we all came out with the same answer? Very strange. My briefest answer at the moment is learning to follow Jesus but that's a bit mystical so I've been trying to think about what I mean by that. Jesus said that the two greatest commandments were to love God and to love your neighbour If he doesn't mind me adding to his words, which I suspect he doesn't, I would say that loving God means first knowing that we're loved by God. And loving our neighbours also means learning to let them love us. So for me, at the moment, I'm thinking our groups are for us to help each other do that. Love God and neighbours. Be loved by God and neighbours. Part of the territory for operating in groups is learning how to make decisions together. We were never particularly hierarchical or paternalistic in the way we ran, but I think we've become even less so over time. So decisions get made in groups. There's no one person deciding everything. It has its downsides, loss of speed, ease, sometimes feeling very confused about what is happening or stressed about where responsibilities lie. But it has massive upsides as well. It demands conversation, participation, self-examination listening and prayer. The word we use a lot is discernment, and how I understand discernment is this, seeking to know the will and purposes of God by paying detailed attention to movement or life in what is inside us and outside us. There's a comment in Acts 15, this is where um, the Council of Jerusalem had to make a decision about what these new Christians, these Gentile Christians, and how they should live. And there's this phrase, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, is what they write in their letter And I think that's a pretty good summary. But figuring out what seems good to us and to God involves a lot of waiting, which is why I started with waiting. We have to wait to know our own minds, wait for others to know theirs, and wait to see what emerges as we converse and pray. Our Ignatian friend Stephen Hoyland gave a quote regarding a spiritual director from many years ago, and that described him as paying attentive submission to the reality of other people. This really challenges and inspires me, and I think it's key to group discernment. I sat down with the kids yesterday to do some art. I thought I'd have a go myself. Ah, and I said, I've got a hyacinth at home, so I thought, right, I'll try and draw that. When was the last time you paid attentive submission to the reality of a hyacinth? Maybe the artist among us might have done this. Um, the colours, the shapes, the beauty of the actual bulb. I just always think of them for their smell, right? Never mind the flower. I felt as though I'd never looked at one before. And it's a similar experience to really pay attentive submission to the reality of other people. It's as though you've never really listened or seen all there is to see or tried to imagine what it might be burgeoning in their hearts, the complexities of their lives, what pressures they're under, the different people they're concerned with 
their hopes and dreams, experiences, joys and wounds. It's a particular kind of attention and one we can't operate in all the time. It's really important to say that. If we tried to do that all the time for everyone, we'd be exhausted. We have to make assumptions and best guesses just to get on much of the time. But periods of discernment do call for this particular way of paying attention. So to get on to what we've tried to do, do the next slide for this. Um, In the past couple of months, we've tried to pay this kind of attention by having two evenings of conversation and prayer, and these were open to any member of the community. Lots of smaller conversations would have been going on as well. We used the examen, which is a practice of asking what brings life, what we're most grateful for, and what doesn't, um, to examine. There's a lack of words here, but the experience of being in cells, what has brought life, what's felt restrictive. And we examined our own desires and wrote a prayer together. That prayer is stuck up at the back. We'll have a look at that later. In between the meetings, I wrote up some of the ideas, some of my ideas, in an attempt to synthesize the conversations. And we had a look at these ideas together the second time. Again, we wrote some prayers. It's been really precious hearing people's different desires. What an amazing community to journey with. I want to take the opportunity to do something a bit similar today. I'll share the ideas with you briefly and invite you to add to the prayer. We'll conclude the meeting by reading out the whole prayer together. This period of discernment is not quite over, and you might be relieved to hear that because you might feel like your voice hasn't been heard yet or you need a bit of time, more time to explore ideas. Perhaps you feel a bit Brexity about the whole thing and quite like us to stop saying discernment every other word. To bring some relief, if you find yourself agreeing with the latter, we do plan to take time on a Sunday in February to hear, and pr- hear from and pray for people who are already leading groups or about to start leading groups, and we're aiming for more clarity by then. Waiting, as we know from the first part of this talk, can evoke lots of feelings and questions. And I've found the whole process quite anxiety-provoking at times. These are questions that have come up for me, but again, there will be more for other people in this room. Will I be wanted, loved and accepted? Who are my real friends? Will I have to do something I don't want to do? Will I feel trapped? Can I be honest? Can I say no? Will I get hurt? Will others get hurt? How much power do I have to choose? What do I even want? What does God want? Is God real? What could get lost in this process? And those are just my being a member of this church questions. (laughs) I've had a load more about my capacity to lead the process, but I'll spare you those. It's been a time of returning to God with my insecurity and loneliness and to find again the love that I need to remember God's love coming to find me, like that song that we led us in at the beginning. I've been consoled by the picture of Jesus asleep on the boat in the middle of the storm with his friends trying to wake him up. And I felt free to tell Jesus exactly how I'm feeling when it's felt like he's a bit asleep or inactive. At the same time, it's also been a time of uncovering desire. And for myself, I found a strong desire to spend time with other women, both inside and outside church, to encourage and to pray for blessing and faith for them and with them. And I found a strong desire also for the simple practice of Teze worship, which is going to be happening, is happening once a month. And that isn't what I expected before going into this process. I wonder what the waiting has been like for you, if you've been aware that there's been waiting. (laughs) What wounds might need healing? What dreams might be rising in you? You'd be relieved to know we're near the end. A whistle-stop tour of the ideas being talked about. See the next slide. Um, And then a chance to reflect. So...
It's taken three months to think we're probably going to call them small groups. It's like paying for an expensive consultant and getting told something you already know. Um, but, but also, um, I think that would just be the shortest, easiest way of referring to them. But I've been really drawn to this phrase, communities of practice as well. Um, but it's probably a bit wordy because I really love the word practice because it implies doing something, but also doing something imperfectly and doing it over and over again. Um, and just hopefully getting better at it, but it almost doesn't matter. You just keep doing it. Um, why, will, why will we do these? To practice our faith in meaningful ways that help people discover the love of God as revealed in Jesus. Help people find their place in the body of Christ. To grow mature disciples of Christ and to pursue salvation and reconciliation between God, the people, and the world. And these four practices that I've con- conceived that hopefully embrace the things that have been shared the first one is rest and I think that's something we could have lacked language for when we talked about cells but actually once we think about it it's so obvious that rest is like divinely appointed by God it's all there through the bible of how important sabbath is and how God rests and actually knowing that everything we do all our desire to sort of outwork this faith starts with grace Finding out that we're beloved children, that we're unable to save ourselves, and that we love only because God first loved us. And what that might look like, it might mean not meeting, retreating, or spending time in easy company, taking sabbaticals from roles or from participating, finding rhythms across the week, month, and year that include rest. The second one, it was just an excuse to put a picture of Dara. Wasn't he cute? He was so cute. Um... (laughs) The second one is prayer. Why? To know God more intimately, to worship and be changed, to listen to God's voice, to intercede with Christ, and to know God's love and care. And there's all sorts of ways of praying, and I'm really keen that we explore and enjoy them all. The third one is encounter. I've put an unknown person's face there to symbolize all the people that we don't know. Um, Why? Because we welcome others as God welcomes us, encountering and recognizing Jesus in the people we seek to serve, distributing the grace that we have received, participating in God's mission to the world. And what might that look like? Finding ways to serve people beyond our community, hospitality, neighborliness, joining in with kingdom activities, and many more things as well. And the fourth one is friendship. Such a sweet picture of all the children crowding around Laurie when he's pretending to be Jesus. Um, why friendship? Well, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, that the world may know that I have sent you. He said, greater love is no person than to lay down their life for their friends. We can be an example to the world of what God intends. So in my mind, that includes shared, finding shared purpose, finding friendship as we, as we share purpose to serve others time together, helping each other, being vulnerable, reading scripture, telling stories, helping each other learn, challenging, confessing, celebrating, mourning, working through conflict, all the one another's that you could ever find in scripture. That is where I'm going to stop and hand over to Lucy. Thank you, Laura. (laughs) That's okay. There's a lot in that. There's um, lots of... <laughs> was that an understatement? Um, 
Um, that's like that's like a week's worth of conversation with Laura, compacted into 25 minutes. Um, there's meditations on waiting. <laughs> there's reflections on what it's been like to be part of this church and be part of small groups. There's um, there's a presentation of what it might mean going forward. And so there's just going to be a little bit of space to digest that. We're going to take 10 minutes and um, maybe just turn into to groups of maybe three or four. You can talk about anything you want. You're completely free to, to chat about the TV you watched last night. But you might want to process what you've heard a little bit. Because we'd love to add to that prayer that some people in the community have already begun praying, which is a kind of, if we're going to meet together outside of Sundays, what do we want that to be? What do we want that to be? Um, and so to get there, what's your experience of waiting? You could discuss that a little bit. But also, what's your, what's your desire for... Um, for our community, when you when you hear those words, rest, <laughs> that's a relief I feel, rest, prayer, encounter, friendship, um, what would you add um, to, to your desires for small groups? So I think Gree's going to come and just sing, um, just play a little bit, just to... Um, as we as we discuss, um, and then after about ten minutes, I'm gonna we're gonna invite you to to go and there's some paper around around here. I'll hand out some pens and just to write something to add your prayer to the wall, so we can continue to build up this sense that together we are working out how do we want these small groups, um, what do we want them to look like as we as we can handle the um, what was the phrase the therapy the therapy phrase of like the discomfort of not knowing or something. Tolerating, un- tolerating uncertainty so we can continue doing that for a couple more weeks so why don't we turn to um, yeah, maybe three or four people near us um, and just ask oh, what did you hear there